want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hosea, and uh, we are going to continue our study that we began this last fall, uh, and Lord willing, we'll be able to complete it here in the next few weeks, and maybe by February or mid-February, we'll be able to launch into a new study, um, so be praying that God would just give me wisdom and direction to know where we need to go after the book of Hosea. But I trust you have been as encouraged and as challenged as I've been going through this book that I personally have never gone through before, never taught through, obviously read it uh, a number of times, but never actually taught it. And as I'm going through the book of Hosea, I'm becoming more and more convinced that there is a three-letter word that is far more despicable than all the four letters, four-letter words in the world combined. That's the word sin. And sin is frightfully deceptive and frightfully destructive. And I was reminded about this yesterday as I spent a good portion of the day dealing with sinful choices that people have made and the awful consequences that have resulted from those sinful choices. And I went home heavy-hearted, and before eating supper with my family, I prayed what was a very sobering prayer that didn't even include anything about the food. And when I said amen, Kelly said to our kids immediately, can you tell dad's been counseling? And so I proceeded to urge my kids not to give in to the alluring temptation to sin, even when it looks more enjoyable than Jesus. Because oftentimes it does. And if you are honest, you know there are times when sin looks more pleasurable than pursuing Christ. And I told them that for me, counseling is one of the greatest deterrents in my life to sin because I get to see firsthand what happens to people who do sin. And I liken counseling to being a paramedic at the bottom of a cliff and, and you're there where all the cars have broke through the guardrails, right? They broke outside the boundaries that were there for their safety and protection and they broke through the guardrails and they crashed you know, a hundred feet below at the bottom of the canyon and you're there picking through the wreckage, right? Trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? And salvage everybody you can who was in the wreck. And it's typically not just the person driving, it's everybody else who was in the car with them. If that's a wife, a husband, kids, parents, right? Extended family. And, and it's just an awful thing. And, um, but, but again, it's, I told the, my kids, I said, you know what, guys, I'm more accountable than anybody regarding sin. Um, not only because I preach against sin, but I sit there and I see the results of it. And so I'm doubly stupid, right, if having seen all that I've seen and uh, that, that I would still continue to choose to sin. But that's what's... That's the insanity of sin, is it not? Well, how many train wrecks have we seen 
in other people's marriages and other people's lives and other people's families, um, and yet we still give in to the same temptations that we know they gave into, and we see the result. It's insanity. And so sin is a scary thing. And um, this week, uh, the director of our biblical counseling ministry, Fred Sabins, asked the people who, who serve in the ministry with him to email him some of the lessons that they had learned through the counseling ministry this past year. And one of them copied me on their response to Fred, and the first lesson they listed was this. This is one of our male counselors. He said this, quote, this is the lesson, number one lesson he learned from counseling this year is this, the consequences of sin are devastating. The pain that we cause to those we love by our selfishness, pride, lust, materialism, etc., is so very destructive to our families. May this frighten all of us away from the path of the foolish. It's easy to start thinking that something is fairly harmless until a counselee comes in and tells you about the ramifications of continuing down that path. And tonight, as we continue on in our study of the book of Hosea, we will have the sad but invaluable opportunity of sitting in on observing a counseling session. I don't know if you are aware that we do that in our counseling ministry as we train, new, train and equip new counselors. We have them come in. Their first step is to come in and sit in and observe a counseling session. And they don't say a word. They just sit there and observe and listen and watch and learn from, from what's going on, what's being said. And so all of us are going to have the opportunity tonight to sit in on and observe a counseling session with Hosea and Israel. So just picture, here's the prophet Hosea sitting behind the desk, right? And he's got the nation of Israel. Uh, he's got the people of Israel across the desk from him. He, they're the counselee. And we're going to learn once again tonight about the fearful and dreadful consequences of sin, which should motivate all of us to resist the allure of sin because we're going to see firsthand the ramifications of foolishly pursuing a path of sin. And one of the most basic principles in God's word is what has been called the law of the harvest. Stated another way, you reap what you sow. And uh, this principle is being drummed into us. Uh, it feels like a broken record almost here through our study of the book of Hosea, as well as a more recent study. Our, our latest study was uh, Lamentations. It just seems like this is the, the, the call of the Old Testament is, is you reap what you sow. It's the law of the harvest. And we saw it um, two weeks, two times ago, two chapters ago, I should say, in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. You remember this passage for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. In other words, they sowed to their foolish sinfulness and they're going to reap the judgment of God, the whirlwind of God's wrath. This principle is found elsewhere in Scripture. Job chapter 4, verse 8. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. In other words, if you sow sin, right, you plow trouble, you harvest that. And obviously the most familiar 
place in Scripture that talks about this law of the harvest is Galatians chapter 6. Take your Bibles and just flip over there quickly as we begin tonight. I want to make sure that we all know where this passage is found. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. If you don't have this verse underlined, highlighted, this would be a good time to do that. Paul says, the one who is, excuse me, in verse 7, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And so there's the general principle. And then he goes on to expand the thought in verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, when, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so while this law of the harvest um, begins in a negative light right here in Galatians chapter 6 and the first part, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 and the first part of verse 8, it ends on a high note. It ends on a positive note. And so we need to understand this harvest principle here has both a negative and a positive aspect to it. There's sowing to the flesh, but there's also sowing to what? The spirit. And we see that, that it's not just don't do bad things, Right? But what's the, what's the, that's to put off. What's to put on? Do good things. Do the right things. And you'll reap a reward. You'll reap good things as a result. Let us not lose heart in doing good, doing the right things. For in due time you will reap if you do not grow weary. And he was speaking specifically about doing good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so we, we need to make sure we don't see this as simply a negative or merely negative principle. The law of the harvest is both positive and negative, negative and positive. It's a very compelling principle. And in Hosea chapter 10, both of these negative and positive aspects of the law of the harvest can be observed. And uh, we can be sure that whenever we make wrong, sinful choices, we will eventually experience negative results, God's judgment, right? But at the same time, we can also be equally sure that whenever we make right, obedient choices, that we will eventually experience positive results. Notice I said eventually, right? You can sin and make a sinful choice, an ungodly choice, a wrong choice. You can do the wrong thing, and, and not necessarily experience any consequences right away. But you continue in that course of life, and you will eventually, right, experience the consequences and, and experience God's judgment. In the same way, you do the right things, and you obey and honor the Lord. You might not see the results you want immediately, right? You may not see the changes that you want in your marriage immediately or in your kids immediately or whatever in your own life immediately, but eventually eventually you'll experience positive results. That's why Paul said, don't lose heart. Don't grow weary in doing what's good because you may not see results right away. But eventually you will see those results. And so here in, in chapter 10, at the, at the same 
time, Hosea is warning Israel of the devastating consequences if they don't, uh, that they're going to experience as a result of sowing to their flesh, choosing to do the wrong things. He also encourages them to sow to the Spirit, to choose to do the right thing with the hope that they would experience the blessings of God's unfailing, restoring love. Notice the key verse of chapter 10. It's verse 12. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. So... With a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness. So there's the sowing and the reaping principle. And then notice the end of verse 12. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. Now, just to set the context again of chapter 10 and this verse in particular, uh, there's two sections to the book of Hosea. We could break, you could break the book up into two big sections, chapters 1 through 3, talk about Hosea's marriage to Gomer, right? And uh, God uses that as an example, an illustration uh, of his relationship with Israel uh, and, and how she's like a wife who's been unfaithful to him. And then chapters 4 through 14 are, are what we could call Hosea's message. And in Hosea's message, chapters 4 through 7, God indicts the nation of Israel, like a judge who accuses them uh, of their sin, and he clearly lays out all the evidence um, that proved their unfaithfulness, and he declares them guilty of violating the covenant that they made with him at Mount Sinai, and uh, as a result, they deserve to be severely punished. And then the chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all about God's judgment. So 4 through 7 are God's indictment. Basically, he accuses them of being guilty, and then now he's in the sentencing stage, if you will, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, where he essentially sentenced them, sentenced them to death, that they're going to be destroyed, uh, they're going to be captured, they're going to be taken into exile, and as we're going to find out tonight, they're going to actually go out of existence, um, the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And so we know that they would be taken into captivity, from which they had originally been delivered, right? God had delivered them. From bondage to who? You remember? When they were born, when Israel was born, they were taken out of Egypt, right? And so God has been warning them in chapters 8 and 9 that they were going to return to that bondage, but this time it wasn't going to be to Egypt, it was going to be to Assyria. But in the middle of this, this section of God's judgment, or really more at the tail end of it, Hosea holds out the hope of repentance and restoration. And sadly, however, the hearts of the people of Israel were, were so hard at this point towards God's word um, that they, they refused to listen to the prophet Hosea and what he had to say. Now, they're not the only ones, right, the nation of Israel who, who has a hard heart towards God's word. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament warns us not to let our hearts be hardened by what? the deceitfulness of sin. Listen to what uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. He's quoting from Psalm 95. He says, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the psalmist was speaking to the nation of Israel, and they said, if you hear God's voice, 
Don't harden your hearts as when they provoked me, God's saying, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so God was using the nation of Israel as an example. Don't be like them. Don't be those people. Don't be that guy. And then the writer of Hebrews provides his commentary. He says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so that verse should cause us to shudder, to realize, you know what, that could be me. I could, right, allow my heart, if I'm not careful, my heart could become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we need the regular encouragement of God's word, the regular encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need that encouragement. And I think we'd all admit at times our hearts do get hardened to God's word. We're not as open, we're not as receptive to it as we should be, and that's when we know that our hearts need to be softened, right? They need to be um, prepared, if you will, um, worked on. Uh, maybe the best word I can think of is they need to be harrowed. Are you familiar with the process of harrowing in, in the, the realm of gardening? Uh, I've told you before that growing up in New England, I spent many a summer day working in the garden, and this was not your ordinary garden. This was no average-sized garden. This was no little backyard, little plat. Okay, this was like half an acre. It was huge. At least it felt that way when I was little, right? And uh, my mom and dad were always overachievers when it came to gardening. And so they had this huge plot of land. In fact, it was so big. Our garden was so big that every spring, my, my dad would get the farmer next door to bring his tractor, like his full-blown tractor, with his plow on the back. That's how big this thing was. And he could make several passes back and forth through our garden with his big tractor and his plow. And, I'll, and I remember that when he got done plowing, there was these deep furrows and, and these huge clods of dirt that he had un, unearthed all over the garden. And at that point, you couldn't go in and plant anything because it was just unplantable. The farmer would take off his plow and he'd put on his harrow and he would drag that harrow back and forth across the plowed ground uh, to smooth it out, right? All the furrows break up all the clods of dirt so the garden would be level and, and, and would be loose and, and ready for the seed to be planted. Now Hosea, along with his contemporary Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah, used this analogy, this, this harrowing analogy, if you will, to challenge the people of Israel to, to harrow up their hearts to make them ready to receive his word. Notice what he says here in verse 12. He says, break up your fallow ground. Jeremiah 4.3 says the same thing. Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. You say, what is this fallow ground they're talking about? Fallow ground referred to that, that land or that ground that had been plowed but not seeded yet. Um, and maybe... It had been left for several growing seasons, either to allow the weeds to die or to make the soil richer and ready. But the point was it was uncultivated, it was unusable, it was unproductive, and as a result, it had become hard 
and, and useless. And so before anything could be planted, it needed to be broken up and softened and made ready to receive the seed. And so the exhortation here in, in, in Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, to break up your fallow ground, really summarizes the, the overall appeal that the prophets of Israel made to the nation of Israel throughout her history. I mean, this is it. Break up your fallow ground. And yet the Israelites continually did not heed that message, and they hardened their hearts in rebellion against God and His Word. And so He sent prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea to admonish them to harrow the soil of their hearts so they could receive the Word. In other words, stop sinning against the Lord and start seeking the Lord. That's what He says. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. And so here in chapter 10 of Hosea, we see some ways that Israel needed to stop sowing to the flesh in order to to seek the Lord and to enjoy His blessing rather than to experience the consequences of their sin. In other words, what we see here in chapter 10 is, is really how to break up the clods of dirt in your heart. And and the same things that Israel was being told to do by Hosea uh, may be some of the same things that you need to stop doing, okay, uh, to break up the clods of dirt in your heart. Because maybe you're here tonight and your heart has become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And maybe you're you're like that, uh, the, the rocky soil, right, or the weedy soil, according to the parable of the soils. And the seed's being thrown out even tonight, right? The Word of God is going out like seed being thrown. And, and what's it, what's, what is it finding when it gets to your heart? Is it just kind of bouncing off and going off somewhere because you're not even a believer? And so Satan is just coming and swooping down and snatching it away? Is it, is it just kind of bouncing off the, the, the rock? Maybe it, it goes in, but then there's this, this rock layer, and so it doesn't ever put down roots. Maybe it's, it gets just tangled because you're so... Worldly, you have all these worldly thoughts and aspirations, and, and you're just inundated by the world, and so the word just gets choked out and it never has its impact in your life? Or is your heart good? Is it that good soil, right? Well, you'll know tonight, by the end of this sermon, what kind of heart you have based on your response to this message. And so, what are some things here, some ways that Israel and maybe you and and, and I need to stop sowing to the flesh in order to seek the Lord and enjoy his blessing. The first one is they needed to stop being selfish and hypocritical. They needed to stop being selfish and hypocritical. Notice verse 1. Hosea says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. And so here Israel, as is often the case, is likened to this vine. And that word luxuriant is possibly degenerate. In other words, some would say that this is talking about a luxurious vine and it's, it's got all this fruit, and that's true, it does. But another way you could translate that word luxuriant is it's a degenerate vine. In other words, it's a, it's a messed up vine. And while it may be fruitful and has all this fruit and it's very productive, it, it, it doesn't, it's not working the way it's supposed to work. Instead of providing fruit for the farmer, it's providing fruit for itself. It's selfish. We know this is one of God's 
favorite analogies for the nation of Israel. Um, Psalm 80, uh, verse 8. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 80, verse 8. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. This is a clear reference to the fact that God kind of transplanted this vine that grew up in Egypt, dug it up, and brought it, cleared the land of Israel, the promised land, and planted Israel there. Isaiah chapter 5 is, I think, uh, the clearest reference to Israel as a vine. Notice this parable of the vineyard. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So here's this farmer who's God, right, uh, invest all this time and money and energy to, to, to produce this vine and, and to give it every chance, every opportunity it could have to, to flourish, and he was expecting it to produce good grapes and it produced only worthless ones. This is the picture of Israel. And he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? I mean, what more could I have done? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. He said, in other words, because you've not produced the righteousness, the right living that I expected of you and required of you, I'm going to remove you, and I'm going to let all the elements come and destroy you. And it's a picture of God bringing enemy nations and allowing them to judge the nation of Israel. One other reference I think is important, Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21 it says, yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? And so again, this is a common picture of Israel um, not being the vine that God planted it to be and, and having to deal with it um, as, a re, as a result. So Notice back in Hosea 10, it says Israel is this luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made, the richer his land, the better he made his sacred pillars. In other words, as the nation prospered, rather than giving glory to God for causing her success, she attributed her success and prosperity to who? To false gods, right? To, to Baal. Um, and so Israel used her prosperity just to add insult to injury to, to selfishly multiply her idolatry. And she just made more uh, altars to Baal. And yet at the same time, the people tried to maintain this appearance that they were truly devoted to God. And all these altars and all these sacred pillars that he's talking about here uh, in verse 1, I think refer to the hypocritical sacrifices and rituals that we've already learned about in the book of Hosea. 
But notice verse 2, it says, their heart is what? Faithless. Literally smooth. In other words, they were smooth talkers. They were deceptive. They were insincere. They were, they were hypocritical. They, they were talking out of both sides of their mouth. One minute they were worshiping God, and the other minute they were worshiping Baal. And so they were double-minded. Their heart was divided. Sort of like what James talks about in, in James chapter 1, verse 6. talks about the double-minded person who doubts. For, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That, that was the nation of Israel. And I think when he says here, their heart is faithless, we know based on the theme of the book of Hosea, right? What is it? God's faithful love for his unfaithful people, that right here in that word, faithless, God put his finger on the problem with Israel. He zeroed in on the tragic flaw of the nation of Israel. From day one, she had been unfaithful to him. I mean, the, the ten, Moses wasn't even, couldn't even get off the mountain, Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments before they were worshiping the golden calf. They, they were harlots. They were spiritual adulterers, just like Gomer was in her relationship with Hosea. And even though they had been taught what was right, they, they chose to do what was wrong. Did you hear that? Thinking about young people, for example, who have been raised in Christian homes, right? Or how about, let's not pick on the kids, how about adults that we've been in church most of our lives, or we've been at least at this church where we're, we're weekly taught what is right, what does God want of us, and yet we continue to choose to do what is wrong. That was the nation of Israel, and that's why God judged them, because they were faithless. Notice it says, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. And so they were going to reap the consequences of being selfish and hypocritical um, in their relationship with, with uh, the false gods. Secondly, they needed to stop making false promises. They needed to stop making false promises. Notice verse 3. It says, Surely now they will say, We have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? So we know that the nation of Israel, again, the ten northern tribes, when they broke off from the two southern tribes and went north, uh, they had many kings, um, all of which were what? Ungodly, okay? Not a, not a righteous one. And uh, in fact, the last five kings leading up to the Assyrian captivity rose to power, you remember how? By assassinating the one before them. And so they were just all jockeying for position. And so God had nothing to do with the appointment of kings in the nation of Israel. And uh, you might assume that at, after all this had happened and all these kings that had been killed off, we're talking like, can you imagine if five of our presidents were assassinated one after the other, <laughs> where our country would be? you think we'd realize, you know what, we don't have a king, we don't have a president, right? Because we failed to acknowledge God as our king. And we've appointed men to the kingship without God's approval. That's exactly what you would think Israel would have concluded by now. And that's why he's saying, surely now they'll say, we have no king for we do not revere the Lord. We've messed up. 
We've forsaken him as our king, and we, we've not asked him who should be our king. But it says here the only thing they seem to realize is that even if they did have a king, he would be no help at this point, right? As for the king, what can he do for us? Notice verse 4, they speak mere words with worthless oaths. They make covenants, promises, and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. We know at Mount Sinai, that's when Israel made a covenant with the Lord, right? They promised God that they would follow him, that they would obey him, that they would keep his commandments, they would follow his rule through Moses and through Aaron. Did they keep that promise? No, they failed to keep that promise to follow him and his appointed leaders. But that's not all. They also failed to keep their promises to one another. Not only were they not faithful to God, they weren't faithful to to one another, their fellow Israelites. And so they would make deals and they would make contracts with, with their fellow Israelites, but they wouldn't follow through with them which led to frequent lawsuits because people had had to take matters into their own hands, if you will, and begin to sue one another to to get them to get what they wanted, right? They would file lawsuits. And so this, again, just reflected their lack of loyalty to God. Furthermore, if they didn't keep their promises to their own brethren, do you think they kept them to enemy nations that they sought to have alliances with? Nope. They made promises, they signed treaties with Assyria, and then when they didn't like what was going on between them and Syria, they would break that treaty and they would go and make a treaty with Egypt, and vice versa. They didn't like what was going on with Egypt, they'd break that treaty and go make a treaty with someone else. And so the idea here is, 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 is they, were, they were not keeping their promises, they were making false promises, and as a result, judgment would cover their land like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Again, just a, a reference, a, a, a word picture, if you will, an analogy of God's judgment. It doesn't actually mean like, there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of weeds growing in the nation of Israel. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about judge God's judgment. Thirdly, they needed to stop worshiping idols. Again, what did they need to do to, 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 to break up that fallow ground and, and to seek the Lord? They needed to stop worshiping idols. Look at verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. The thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob, or the great king. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Now, we've talked about this, this, this calf this golden calf that Jeroboam, the first king of Israel who broke away from Rehoboam, who was David's in David's line, it was Solomon's son, they rebelled against Rehoboam, and so Jeroboam made himself, appointed himself king of the northern, 10 northern tribes. He set up a golden calf in, you remember what city? Bethel, to create an alternative worship center so people would have to travel, so, so people wouldn't have to travel to Jerusalem um, because he didn't want to lose their loyalty, and he thought, man, if they go down to Jerusalem, man, that's not going to be good. They're going to stay down there. We, we need to cre- make a place for them to worship up here. So he, he, he violated God's will, which was the people worship where? At the temple in Jerusalem, right? And so this infuriated God. In fact, we found that out in, in, in Hosea chapter 8, verse 5. 
Notice it says he was rejected. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. And so he was, he was hacked off, man, about that golden cow that they had made. And so notice what he calls Bethel. He doesn't even call it Bethel. He calls it what? Beth-Avon, which was a slight, really it was a derogatory nickname for Bethel. And uh, Bethel actually means house of God, and Beth-Avon means house of wickedness. And so he was mocking them. And uh, notice it talks about that Samaria will, excuse me, that the thing itself, it says, will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob or the great king. In other words, the king of Assyria would capture and carry away this golden calf. And um, this, this was a common practice, right? When we studied the book of Daniel, we learned that uh, that's exactly what uh, Nebuchadnezzar did. He went into Jerusalem and he took all the, the articles uh, and items from the temple and he brought them back to Babylon. And this was a way for them to exalt over, you know, that their gods were stronger than Israel's gods. And, and so he, they took this golden calf as if it was Israel's god which was just shameful, right, in itself. But this was their way of humiliating and shaming Israel. And then rather than loving God, who had graciously saved them on numerous occasions, notice the nation's reaction that suggests that they were more in love with this golden calf than they were with God. Notice at the end of verse 5, indeed its people will mourn for it. And its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. And they're going to be weeping and crying and in mourning and you know, sackcloth and ashes because they've lost their golden cow. It just shows how messed up they were, right? Sometimes we mourn. We have a bad attitude, if you will. We have a pity party when we don't get what we want or something that we love gets taken away or broken or stolen or lost, or right? Again, those are always good tests to say, okay, maybe that was an idol in my life because I'm really upset right now or I'm really sad right now. Um, maybe that was too important to me, right? So no wonder God was about to punish them. Look at verse 7. Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. So just talking about the nation being captured along with her king, and then he likens Israel to this twig floating down a river. You can just picture this little twig, helpless little twig, floating down the river, and the nation of Israel would just be violently swept away and brought to ruin by Assyria. Verse 8, also the high places of Avon, Beth-Avon, this is where the false worship was, the golden calf where it was, the sin of Israel will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So he's, he's basically saying the site of Israel's idolatrous worship, originally Bethel, now Beth-Avon, in God's mind, would become basically a, an ancient ruin, overgrown with thistles and thorns. And I think what's ironic is that when Israel entered Cana, the land of Canaan, what did God command them to do with the high places? Tear them down. I don't want you to, this is where all the idol worship was. This is why I'm driving these people out of this place because they're a bunch of idol worshipers. And I want you to go in there and I want you to tear down all their idols. And you're going to worship the one true God. Well, what did they do? 
They say, hey, that looks like a kind of cool place to worship God. Let's try that. And let's try that place over there. And how about that place over there? Next thing you know, they're worshiping idols. And so I think it's ironic that because they failed to obey God's command, the Lord had to bring in an enemy nation, a foreign nation, to, to do his dirty work, if you will. And, and not only destroy the high places of the former Canaanites, but now Israel's had adopted these high places. And so we know that during Assyria's siege and attack upon Israel, uh, things would get so bad, notice at the end of verse 8, that would get so bad that people would call on the mountains and the hills to fall on them just to escape the misery and the pain and, and the brutality of the Assyrians. In other words, they would rather be crushed by, rock, by a rock slide than endure the wrath of God through the Assyrians. Now, that should sound familiar to you if you, you know, know your New Testament well, right? When it says, they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. First of all, by the way, let me just say this. It's interesting, if you reference mountains and hills in the Old Testament, uh, they were typically used by God uh, in a positive light in the nation of Israel. They would look to the hills from whence their help would come, right? And the, the, the mountains and the hills were, were, were things that caused them to shout for joy, and they were a sign of God's protection. And now they were taking what God meant for good and asking God to cause them to come down on them. Interesting. But in the New Testament, Jesus prophesied that when, when the Romans invaded uh, Jerusalem and they destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, that the Jews would say the same thing, fall on us, right? They would, they would want the rocks and the hills to fall on them. The same thing in, in the book of Revelation, John uh, prophesies during um, the, the um, seal judgments in, in, in Revelation chapter 6 that unbelievers will make this similar plea in response uh, to the terror that they will have uh, of, of, of God's wrath through these judgments. And they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. They would rather just die by, again, a rock slide than have to face the wrath of God. And so God was telling them, you need to stop worshiping idols. Fourthly, they needed to stop sinning repeatedly. And uh, this was probably the, the biggest issue with the Lord is that their sin was just unabated. And it, it never lessened. It just continued to increase in its strength and its intensity um, Despite all the warnings and all the prophets that came to the nation of Israel, it just got worse. And notice in verse 9, he, Hosea references again this city of Gibeah. For the days of Gibeah, or from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel, there they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? Remember, we talked about that um, Last time, in chapter 9, verse 9, he references Gibeah. He says, they have gone deep in depravity as in the days of Gibeah. And uh, we talked about this, this probably um, number one worst sin. If you could say there was one worst sin that Israel committed that, that was head and shoulders above all the rest. The men of Gibeah in the city of Gibeah were guilty of a gang rape where they, they killed, they ended up killing this, this concubine that this Levite was 
traveling around with, which resulted in this awful civil war. Remember when he cut her in 12 pieces and sent her all over to one, one piece to every tribe, and the tribes were in an outrage, and the whole nation came against the tribe of Benjamin and attacked them and completely wiped them out. I mean, there was only, I should say, almost completely wiped out. There was only 600 Benjamite men left. And this, this was an awful situation, and, and unfortunately, this was, this was not an isolated incident. That's what, that's what Hosea is saying here. This was not an isolated incident, but it established the pattern for Israel's sinful history. He says, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. And so consequently, it's, he says here, will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? In other words, in the same way that the nine tribes of Israel stood together in punishing the tribe of Benjamin for its sin in God's perfect timing, God will bring Assyria to punish the entire nation of Assyria and uh, uh, entire nation of Israel, and it will happen, at least part of it, in Gibeah. Notice it says, when it is my desire, I will chastise them, I will punish them, and the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. You say, what is that? Double guilt or double sin. Some of your Bibles might say double sin. What does that mean? Well, Commentators suggest it could mean a lot of different things. The most natural thing would just simply to be not only did they sin back then, but they're also sinning now. <laughs> they're doubly guilty, right, of the sins of Gibeah that happened at Gibeah, but also the sins that are happening now. Um, Warren Wearsby makes the comment, the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And that was the, the story of the nation of Israel. They didn't learn. They didn't learn from history. How about us? <laughs> Is that true of us, right? When you think about the history of your sin and some of your old sinful habit patterns, right? Um, are you learning from history? Okay, um, I did that last time, and, and this is what happened, and, and, but I'm insane enough to try it again and expect different results, right? Are you learning from history, or are you not learning from history? I think that's a scathing rebuke of a lot of us, that the only thing we learn from history is we don't learn from history. We need to go to school on past sin and past temptation and what happened and that we don't want to do that again because we learned our lesson back then. I would like to think also that double sin, you guys are familiar with Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 Jeremiah says it this way, for my people have committed how many evils? Two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now Israel was, excuse me, Isaiah, excuse me, Jeremiah was, was, was talking to the, the, the nation of Israel here, and, and what does he just say? He said, they, they, they're guilty of two sins. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first thing. They have, here they have this fountain of living water, and they say, I don't need you. That's the first sin. Second sin is they go and they dig up wells. They, they try to find water somewhere else. But they can't, the, the, those wells don't hold water. So they forsake God, and if that's not bad enough, they go and try to find satisfaction somewhere else. And I think that may be another reference to this double guilt, this double sin in verse 10. 
Well, the last thing they needed to stop doing was they needed to stop trusting in themselves and others. They needed to stop trusting in themselves and others. Just looking back at that last point, I don't want to rush through that. Stop sinning repeatedly. That's the point, right? What's the pattern of your life? I mean, are there sins in your life that you just continually commit over and over and over again? Hey, learn from history, right? Just can't emphasize that point enough. Number five, stop trusting in themselves and others. Notice verse 11. Ephraim is a trained heifer. Here we go with a cow illustration again. This is good for Texas, right? We all can relate to heifers. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim, another reference for uh, Israel. Judah will plow. Those are the two northern tribes, the two, two, two southern tribes, excuse me. And Jacob will harrow for himself. That's all of Israel, Israel and Judah combined. So what is he saying here? Ephraim... The nation of Israel is a trained heifer. It was, a, it was once a trained heifer. It was trained um, to, to thresh grain, to, to kind of um, to, to, um, grind out the grain. And uh, a, a heifer, a cow, would be hooked up to this, to this um, threshing floor, and they would just kind of walk around in a circle, right? And they would thresh the grain. And, and that was relatively light work. It was, you know... Cows would love it, I guess, if cows love work, right? That would be the, if you're a cow, that's what you want to do. You want to thresh the grain. Why? Because you're not muzzled, okay? And you're free to eat while you work. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? You're just eating and working at the same time. That's a great deal. And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 talks about that. Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. Uh, Paul uses that. Uh, same reference in First Timothy chapter five, talking about pastors and making sure you you don't muzzle the pastor while he's treading out the grain, if you will, while he's serving the Lord in the church, that he's worthy of double honor, and make sure you pay the guy. And it's it's a cool analogy um, in the Old Testament and New Testament. And I think what here in Hosea chapter ten it corresponds to the joyous service that the Lord expected and required of Israel within the covenant relationship. This was like, hey, guess what? It's a blessing to serve the Lord. We're God's people, and we get to serve the Lord, and it's a joy to tread that, that grain. But they were no longer this trained heifer that just kind of walked in the circle and was obedient and submissive, right? Now, if you remember, God had said back in Hebrews, or excuse me, Hosea chapter 4, verse 16, they'd become a stubborn heifer. Remember that? This is Hosea chapter 4, verse 16. Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? And so as a result, God would have to put them under the yoke of slavery. He'd have to put a yoke on them. They couldn't just kind of go untethered, if you will, or unmuzzled. He would have to put a yoke of slavery and subject them to hard labor. Now they were going to have to be out in the field plowing and breaking up the hard-packed soil, right? He says, so, he goes on to talk about Judah plowing, Jacob will harrow, sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, break up your fallow ground. And so now they're out, and, and I think this is a picture of exile, right? They're no longer serving the Lord in Israel where it was easy. Now they're in the hard land, man, and they're, they're having to grind it out. 
with this, under this yoke of slavery. But notice, even though this is, this is a negative, um, sad picture, it's not a picture of, of unrelieved or pointless gloom, as Derek Kidner says in his commentary. It's not a picture of unrelieved or pointless gloom. Notice verse 12. This is the key verse of the, of the chapter. Here we are again. So with a view to righteousness... Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. So in the midst of this, this message of condemnation and judgment, and, and you're going to be taken out of your land, and, 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 and you're going to be in exile in Assyria, and you're going to be under this yoke of slavery, Hosea holds out the hope of repentance and restoration. Very similar to what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to the similarity. Just as Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, this is good news. Now listen, you're in, you're in sin, but guess what? If you repent, God will wash your sins clean. You'll be as white as snow. And if you consent, if you obey, you're going to be blessed. You're going to eat the best of the land. And so the point is, the, 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 there was hope here. There was hope of escaping this judgment if they would repent, turn from their sin, and seek the Lord. And so you say, well, what does this look like? For it is time to seek the Lord. Well, I think practically it involves what? You got to turn away, first of all, from your sin, right? Whatever you're doing. Change the way you're living and become a loyal, faithful individual. In other words, your number one goal and passion in life is to be pleasing to the Lord. That, that you want to be loyal, you want to be faithful to God. And that should be our number one passion, our number one goal in life, right, is to be loyal and faithful to God, to seek Him with all of our heart. And when we do that, God will deliver us from a life of sin and pour out His blessing on us like, like rain, He says here, until He comes to rain righteousness on you. Again, this is a beautiful picture of, of restoration, revival, possibly even salvation for those of you that may not be Christians. So let us, this is, this is Hosea 6.3, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. So we know this is a, a really a, a reference to the Messiah. Okay, this is a messianic blessing. I think it's giving us a glimpse of, of the coming of Christ. Um, more likely his second coming rather than his first coming. But this, this, this verse, Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, really summarizes the call for repentance made by the, the prophets of Israel throughout their history. I said that already. But unfortunately, tragically, the nation didn't respond. Look at verse 13. You have plowed not righteousness. What have they plowed? Wickedness, you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way 
Right? The Bible says, Proverbs 14 says, there's a way that seems right to a man. Right? There's a way that seems right to a man, but, the, but the, in the end it leads to what? Death. So they trusted in their own way, their own wisdom. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. They also, it says, they trusted in, in your numerous warriors. So they were continuing to sow wickedness. As a result, they would reap evil. They were, rather than relying on God's power to deliver them, they relied on their own military might, their alliances with foreign nations. And as a result, they would reap the fruit of sinful dependence on chariots and soldiers, unlike Psalm 20, verse 7, which says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust, what? In the name of the Lord our God. And then look at verse 14. Therefore, a tumult will arise among your people, In other words, war will break out. All your fortresses will be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. How gross is that? You say, what is that all about? Who's Shalman and where's Beth Arbel? Well, I think to illustrate how bad things would be when Assyria came and and laid siege to, to Israel, Hosea compared that to some historical incident that's unknown to us. We don't really know for sure who Shalma was, um, and we don't know where Beth Arbel was, but it was obviously well known to the nation of Israel. And it could very well be that these were, this is a reference to either a previous Assyrian ruler or the present Assyrian ruler, and uh, just kind of the way they, they took advantage, and they, they, they were known for their brutality. There was a, some tragic battle that took place here that was remembered for its atrocities, especially the, the wholesale slaughter of women and their children. And so the point is the nation as a whole would suffer a similar fate because of her great sin. Verse 15, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. I mean, you got, the Syrians were going to attack at the heart of their sinful, idolatrous worship, right? Is Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. And that's probably a reference to the fact that, that the last king of Israel was taken captive by Assyria at the dawn of the conquest. Before the actual siege of Samaria began, they came in and they, they took him away. And so here's a powerful message, right, of repentance. Repent and seek the Lord. And yet the nation ignored Hosea's message and they refused to stop sowing to the flesh and the law of the harvest eventually played out and God's judgment fell. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded the land of Israel and the 10 northern tribes vanished from the pages of history. The next time we see any reference to them is in Revelation chapter 7 with 144,000 where God calls out 12,000 from every tribe, right? Right? of the nation of Israel. And I think we just need to think about what is the big picture here, okay? God loved and continues to love the nation of Israel. Amen? Do you agree with that? And he promised to be faithful to the nation of Israel. That's right. You believe that? The Bible teaches, right? But that doesn't mean he will not punish those he loves and those he's faithful to. In fact, God punishing us 
for our sin is one of the clearest expressions of his faithful love for his unfaithful people. When he chastises us, he disciplines us, he punishes us, he, he spanks us, if you will. That's an expression of his faithful love to us. Someone said it this way, God's love for his people guarantees that they cannot act any way they want without expecting him to respond in judgment. That could be good news or bad news, right? Depending on your perspective. But if you're one of God's people, right? That's good news. That God loves you so much that that guarantees you just can't get away with sin. He's not going to let you get away with it. That's one of the greatest evidences that you're a child of God, that you cannot get away with sin. That you're miserable when you sin or you get caught when you sin. That's the grace and mercy of God. And someday you might get caught in sin and and, and, and some sin that you've been committing over you know, days, weeks, months, years, and that will be the worst day of your life, but that will also be the best day of your life. Because, it, again, it will be evidence of how God loves you, that he has not given you over to your sin. So what is our response here? I think it's easy for us to kind of sit in judgment on Israel and go, man, they were just dumb. If I was them, I wouldn't do that. I mean, it seems so clear to us, doesn't it? Like, man, what, Israel, what were you thinking, right? And I think it's, um, it's easy to think, well, this is some situation that's just kind of back in the 8th century B.C. Who, who cares? It, it doesn't relate to me at all. Well, we need to understand that this tragedy of the nation of Israel really was just a foretaste of, of weightier events that would take place in the future, as are all tragedies in history. Let me just remind you of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13. Lest we walk away feeling self-righteous when we consider ourselves compared to the nation of Israel. This is Luke chapter 13. Jesus was asked to comment on um, a bloody massacre that had taken place in his day. This is Luke chapter 13. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So there was just some, some, some massacre that had taken place, some public massacre, not unlike what we saw recently in Newtown, Connecticut, right? And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Do we honestly, we prayed for the people in New England? Do we think that they're worse sinners, greater sinners than us in Texas, Right? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, the same thing will happen to you. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, it will be the same for us if we refuse to repent of our sin and turn to the Lord Jesus and follow him. if we choose to go our own way and live, the, live, live our lives the way we want. So the message for us tonight, very simple. Repent and seek the Lord. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And that really is a great transition to what we're going to see in Hosea chapter 11 where we get to go back to the part of Hosea that we all love. And that's the part where we learn about God's unending, unfailing, faithful love for us. And God's, the, the whole rest of the book from here on out is all about God restoring the nation of Israel. So I look forward to seeing you next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I know this is a lot to take in at once, and it's just a heavy subject, Lord. And I pray that I've handled your word accurately tonight and, and in a way that's practical and helpful and, and relevant, and uh, Lord, that we can all walk away with something to, to apply to our lives. And so I pray your spirit would take your word now and, and, and apply it to our hearts. Change us, grow us, Lord. Grant us genuine repentance, Father, that we would not, that we would not continue in repetitive patterns of sin in our lives, Lord, that we would learn from our own personal history, Lord, that we would um, wise up and that we would truly seek you with all of our heart because we know that you promise that when we seek you, that we'll find you and we seek you with all our hearts. And so, Lord, grant us that desire to seek you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.